0: Amen. Thank you, Jocelyn and the, and the band, for, for leading us in that. <clears throat> Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And as, uh, as we've heard several times already, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the beginning of Holy Week. Next week we will be celebrating Easter, and we are excited about Easter. I will admit and I will acknowledge that Easter snuck up on me this year. But I'm still excited because, as Watson said, it will be our first in-person Easter since 2019. The, the whole last decade, if you think about it. Um, but uh, I can't wait for that. And, and please join us also for our Good Friday service with and at Washington Community Fellowship on Friday uh, at 7. And then join us again a week from now, right here as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Uh, it'll be a celebration. Uh, I do want to encourage you to participate in both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Uh, we need both. We need both lament and celebration. We need both mourning and joy. Life draws both tears and laughter out of us. God meets us in both the weeping and the dancing. And so please try to participate in in the full experience this coming week. Uh, Also, just a quick note, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that we will be keeping our our in-person indoor mask requirement in place until the end of April, which obviously includes next week, which is Easter. Uh, With school spring break this week and with the BA2 variant hitting us right about now, we want to celebrate and we want to celebrate responsibly. So uh, again, come out to our first in-person Easter weekend in three years. It has been a long time coming and I can't wait to be with you and for us to be together as a church. Let me also invite you to join us this week as we enter our last week of Lenten prayers. 7 a.m. every weekday. We've had folks who've shown up faithfully. Uh, There are folks who've joined us every day for for Lent, and there have been folks who've just popped in now and again. Uh, Even if you haven't participated yet this season, uh, Holy Week is as good a time as any to uh, jump in and start your day in communal prayer with other church folks. You don't have to turn your camera on. Most people don't. Uh, Just head to to go.christcitydc.org slash lenten Prayer at 7. Pray with us for about 20 minutes. So this past week, Pastor Andrea led one of the Lenten prayer sessions, and she posed the question, as we reflect on God's all-knowing love, how does that make you feel? As we reflect on God's all-knowing love, how does that make you feel? And to be honest, the kind of week I had had meant that reflecting on God's all-knowing love didn't make me feel particularly great. Ken yeah, had the best week. Hadn't, uh, you know, hadn't been as present or patient with my family, hadn't uh, you know, felt real behind in preparing for Easter and, and a bunch of other work, wasn't as centered or as grounded in God as, as I wanted to be. And so when Drea reminded us of God's all-knowing love on Wednesday morning, what hit me at, at almost the exact same time were these deep, deep, these dual feelings of comfort and challenge. Comfort and challenge. Deep sense that God loves me as I am, and a deep conviction that there's more. There's more for me. There's more that God has for me, more that God longs for me, more for me to choose to step into. Uh, Many of you know or have seen or heard from uh, my son Daniel. He is a joy and a delight to be around most of the time. I say most of the time because well nobody's perfect and uh, one of the reasons for this week being what it has been is because I am now a parent of a three <laughs> which is what it sounds like or to be even more clear the urban dictionary definition is a three-year-old spouting attitude like a spoiled teenager <laughs> a 3 now now to be completely fair this is the stage of human development that Daniel is at. Okay. He, he's, he's learning self-sufficiency and he's learning boundaries. He's, he has lots of words and lots of feelings and he doesn't always know how to express those feelings. It, it, it's, 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 where he's at. And it's helpful for me. It's helpful for me and for Carolyn to know that this is part of his growth. It's part of the big picture. You know, uh, we got to go through this. It's still hard to be navigating these new spaces together, though. Uh, In some of the emergency research I was doing this week, (laughs) notice Googling, (laughs) I read this from the book How Toddlers Thrive by psychology professor Tova Klein. She writes, They are caught between two battling needs, the desire for self and independence versus the need for comfort, security, and the familiar. Let me say that again. They are caught between two battling needs the desire for self and independence versus the need for comfort security and the familiar and I thought she ain't just talking about toddlers here (laughs) I feel those needs (laughs) we feel those needs I know many of you do Uh, I was also reminded this week as I'm trying to figure out how to parent well of a leadership paradigm I was taught many years ago looks like this So it has comfort or love or support on one axis and challenge or limit setting or boundaries or structure on the other. I've seen uh, different variations and versions of this. You may as well. There's a, um, one from the management consulting firm McKinsey that describes how employees are affected by their leaders' challenge versus support. It's been utilized in restorative justice circles and uh, advocated for as a leadership model for teachers in classrooms, social workers, government officials, as well as, yes, parents. I first learned it in the context of church leadership, or I guess leadership in general. And it looked like this, and I'll read it in case you can't see it. So you have different kinds of leaders, different kinds of, well, church leaders, but leaders in general. In The bottom left corner, low comfort, low challenge, you have the abdicator. Creates a culture of apathy and low expectation. Enables bad behavior. Bottom right, high challenge, low comfort, you have the dominator. Creates a culture of fear and manipulation, causes dependency and blame, criticism and judgment. Top left, high comfort, low challenge, you have the protector. Which creates a culture of entitlement and mistrust. Codependency, tolerates poor behavior and a false harmony. And then the top right, high comfort and high challenge. The liberator creates a culture of empowerment and opportunity of interdependency and of partnership and collaboration. I'm sure you can think of work or family situations you've been in or organizations or leaders or parents or friends you've known who tend toward each of these quadrants. The terms and the perspectives might vary slightly, but the idea is the same. The the, the principle is the same, which is that the most conducive environment for growth and health and thriving in pretty much any realm of relationship is one that takes seemingly dueling dynamics and says, not this or that, not either or, but both and. High comfort and high challenge. High support and high structure, high commitment and high accountability. One of my favorite philosophers, Dallas Willard says that spiritual transformation always begins with some form of disruption or interruption. Spiritual transformation always begins with some form of disruption or interruption. And what we'll see today is that God's deep comfort and God's deep challenge are what God's all-knowing love are made of. It's the paradox of grace and truth that makes up the power of God's love which disrupts and interrupts, which breaks through and breaks in to the way things are, to the apathy, to the fear, to the the, the despair, the the injustice, the, the sin in our lives and in our world. This is the Divine disruption with which Jesus comes to each of the characters in our story today so This is the divine disruption with which Jesus comes to each of us in our stories today And depending on who and where we are, sometimes we need more comfort Sometimes we need more challenge Jesus meets us where we are and invites us to move where we need to go Let's start with the scriptures. I'm, I'm not going to reread all of the passage again, but but here's the context. All right, it's the week leading up to the biggest festival of the year for the Jews, and one of the few times when everyone would go up to Jerusalem, where the temple was, to, to celebrate Passover. So maybe you have a tradition that's particularly uh, important or or sacred to you. Uh, maybe it's uh, you know Thanksgiving or Christmas or July 4th, or you know it's it's time with your family every year. Maybe it's a, an anniversary, a wedding anniversary, or a special uh, birthday, or a day when you remember uh, when someone passed. Maybe it's the day you got clean, the day you gave your life to Christ, the day you fell in love with Jesus. Maybe it's Easter. You know that day every year, you, you save up in preparation for what, what, what you're going to do. You take a day or a few days off of work. It's, it's a big deal. Passover was like that. Uh, but like on a national level. So think about the presidential inauguration pre-COVID, but like every year. In those days, Jerusalem was normally home to about 50,000 people, but historians estimate that at Passover, the city may have grown up to 10 times its normal size because of this occasion. That's how important Passover was. That's how busy and bustling the city was at this time of year. But it was more than busy and bustling. Remember, Passover wasn't just a, a holiday. Passover was the time when, when, when Israel remembered God using Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in, in Egypt. It was one of the greatest moments in Israel's history when, when God showed up and defeated the biggest, baddest superpower in the world at the time. Passover was a celebration of God's powerful liberation. And who was the... The big bad superpower oppressing them and occupying their land in Jesus' day. The Romans, the Roman Empire. And once again, the people of Israel were were yearning to be free. They were ready for their deliverer. They were restless. And this time, they weren't longing for someone to lead them out, but they were longing for someone to kick the Romans out. And on the other side, Rome, Rome would have been on high alert ready to shut down any hint of trouble with extreme force if necessary. So Jerusalem at Passover was busy and it was bustling, yes, but it was a packed powder keg ready to blow. And here comes Jesus. Some of you, your Bibles will call today's passage the, the triumphant entry, but, but as Atris shared in our kid's city lesson, it wasn't like a typical military victory parade where the king or the general would be leading, you know, their, leading their, their army in with prisoners in tow. Some scholars suggest that Pilate may have done just that around this time to remind the Jewish people who was in charge. Jesus, though, comes to Jerusalem riding. On a donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9 tell the daughter of Zion look your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey this is a prophecy about the Messiah about the chosen one of God the 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 one who would come to establish God's kingdom who would who would who would establish God's peace who would break the rule and the reign and the strength of the oppressor free the children of Israel And yet, paradoxically, the donkey is what kings would ride in times of peace, not in times of war. The donkey is what kings would ride in times of peace, not in times of war. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the message that he was sending when he sent his disciples ahead. His kingdom, God's kingdom, was advancing. It was coming. It was on the move. And... It would not be advanced by violence. Still, as he rides the donkey toward Jerusalem, the embodiment of prophecy, this coming king, we're told the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, scold your disciples, tell them to stop. The Pharisees often get a, a bad rap in the gospel accounts. They're uh, the fun sponges. <laughs> the, uh, the legalists. They're, they're the ones that we say, I thank God that I'm not like them. Right? they are also leaders trying to protect their people and, and themselves. But you think about the delicate, precarious, political situation they were in. The last thing that you would want is for some messiah wannabe to bring the might of Rome down on them. Jesus was not the, la- the first messiah to show up. He was not the last either. At least, he wasn't the first or the last person to claim that they were the messiah. And every time it ended the same way. Crucifixion or military defeat, followers in disarray, and the Jewish people no more free than before. Yet Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, I tell you, if they, if my disciples were silent, the stones would shout. (laughs) The divine disruption here is this contrast between the Pharisees and the disciples. It's an invitation to consider the spiritual and the communal response to Jesus. One group took a big risk in rejoicing. You know, we, we, we tend to think about You know, well, you know, I I get to worship here. We have that freedom in this country. One group took a big risk in praising God for Jesus' coming. In saying, you know, blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me tell you, if you're a Roman, you're not hearing King in neutral terms. It is a risk to say blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The other group, these Pharisees, let fear masquerading as common sense and rational thinking blind them to the very one they had been waiting for. The very one who was right there in front of them. In the following verses, we're told, as Jesus came to the city and observed it, He wept over it. He wept over Jerusalem. He said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. The Pharisees couldn't see God incarnate right before them. And nor could Jerusalem. See, the Jewish uh, religious and political leaders at the time were were even then trying to curry favor both with the oppressed and restless Jewish people and with the Romans in power. They were trying to play both sides. And ultimately, their machinations would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple by Rome in AD 70, just as Jesus had foretold. All because they they didn't see God in their midst. They didn't see the Prince of Peace. They didn't see the one who brings peace. They didn't see the one who is our peace. They couldn't recognize Him. God is and always has been working to bring life out of death. Always has been working to bring light out of darkness and hope out of despair. And joy out of tragedy, and justice to a broken world and to those who are crying out for it. God is and always has been working, even when we can't see it. We've sung that refrain often over the years here at Christ City. Aunque no pueda haber, está sobrando. Siempre está sobrando. And I know in the events of our day, in the events of our lives, it is. It, is, it feels so much easier to name the death than to name the life, right? To name what's wrong than to name what's right. To, to, to name uh, where God doesn't seem to be than to name where God does seem to be. I know that. I feel that. Sometimes we might need to look a little harder. Sometimes we might need God to lift our heads and, and open our eyes. Maybe that's the prayer for you today. Lift up my weary head, Lord. Lift up my weary head, Lord. Open my eyes, God. Open my tired eyes. Help me see. Comfort and challenge. Divine disruption. Immediately after entering Jerusalem to Acclamation and cheers, Jesus goes up to the temple and we're told when Jesus got to the temple, when he entered the temple, he threw out those who were selling things there. Okay, I want to show you a, a model reconstruction of what the temple would have looked like. So that big open area that's just inside the walls, immediately inside the walls, it's what's called the court of Gentiles. And it is in this area that there were lots of traders and money changers. You needed to bring an animal to sacrifice for worship. And it was easier to purchase one at the temple than it was to bring one from home, especially since the animal had to be pure and unblemished. It had to pass inspection with the temple inspectors. And if you were traveling for days to get to Jerusalem, who knows what could happen to that animal. So it made sense. The temple also had its own currency because Roman currency was considered unclean. The currency of the oppressor. Of course, it's unclean. So you had to change your money to go and then purchase an animal for sacrifice. It's all very practical, right? Makes sense. But the temple had also come to represent everything that was oppressing the poor. So the wealthy were buying up property of small landowners so they could increase their uh, output and their their, uh, profits and they could sell goods back to Rome, and the small landowners, they still had to pay their taxes to the temple and to the state, and when they couldn't, you know, if it was a a bad harvest year or if there was a drought, when they couldn't do that, they would have to borrow money from the wealthy, often at exorbitant levels of interest, and when they couldn't pay back their debt, which they usually couldn't, then their property was forfeit. And they would join the growing ranks of the poor and peasant class. And all of the records of these debts were held in the temple. All of the records of debt were held in the temple. The temple is supposed to be where God dwells, a place of worship and sacrifice. When the first temple was built and it was, it was uh, consecrated to God, King Solomon commissioned musicians and made sacrifices and brought the people together and, and they worshiped God and the glory of God was so powerful in that place that it says the, 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 the priests couldn't even stand to minister. Such was the presence of God in that place. That is what the temple was supposed to be about. A place where heaven met earth because God was there. And yet by the time of Jesus, when people saw the temple, when people saw the house of God, they were reminded not of God, but of the rich, corrupt aristocracy in cahoots with foreign occupiers. They were reminded of systematic and systemic injustices. They were reminded of their own suffering. You know, years after Jesus, when another rebel Jewish army stormed the temple, the first thing they did was to burn those records of debt like hackers wiping out all of our records of student loan (laughs) oh we felt we feel that one we feel that one that's how deep the pain was felt sometimes divine disruption comes in the challenging form of overturning unjust tables and interrupting unjust practices this is not the way things are supposed to be Jesus is saying This is supposed to be a place of worship, a a place where people come to meet with God, but you have made it a symbol of oppression and sin. It is not supposed to be the case that people think of Christians as judgmental hypocrites who aren't very good at loving those who are different from them, and especially those who have been historically marginalized, those who are still marginalized in our society today. Women, people of color, immigrants, poor, LGBTQ folks. It's not supposed to be the case. It's not supposed to be the case that there have been so many instances of child abuse and financial abuse or spiritual abuse or any other kind of abuse in, 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 the, in, the, in the walls of the church that and people don't want to be here anymore. People don't trust leaders anymore. They don't trust us with money anymore. Don't trust us with our kids anymore. Not supposed to be the case. It's not supposed to be the case that Christians are seen as siding with the status quo while people continue to be trapped in cycles of systemic injustice and sin. This is not the way things are supposed to be. In Scripture, the concepts of righteousness and justice are often intertwined because righteousness is not about personal piety. It's not about a particular stand of, a, of individual moralism. It is about right relationships. It's about wholeness within community and within society. And relationships, y'all, they involve other people. They involve our interactions with other people. Justice involves other people. It involves defending the image of Godness in everyone. Challenging the practices and processes and systems and structures that deny or denigrate that divine image. To paraphrase Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, where human dignity is most vandalized, that's where we need to make the biggest fuss. That's where we need to make the biggest fuss. Jesus' actions, you see, while they were certainly challenging to those who are enacting the injustice, would simultaneously have brought some comfort to those longing for justice. A measure of solidarity, right? Seeing this this rabbi, this, this healer, perhaps, who knows, perhaps even the Messiah of God, stand up to the rich and powerful. Maybe Jesus is for us. Maybe God is for us. The kingdom of God that Jesus presents us with and comforts us with and confronts us with has implications for every one of us and and for every area of the world for every life and every sphere of life We've seen Jesus speak to the political and the economic in weeping over Jerusalem and disrupting temple trading We've we've seen Jesus speak to the religious and the communal in responding to the Pharisees fear and accepting the disciples acclaim But I want to name two more characters in today's story who experienced divine disruption, who may offer examples of response for how we might uh, respond to Jesus. First, there are the two disciples right at the beginning of the story, who I'm going to count as one collective character. As Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there. When you enter it, you'll find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say it's master needs it. Sometimes we need to do what Jesus says, even if we don't understand it. Sometimes we need to do what Jesus says, even if we don't understand it. Love your enemies. If you remember that someone has something against you, go and be reconciled with them. Forgive. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's not easy. None of it is easy. Much of it runs counter to what we feel like doing. All of it is disruptive. And yet perhaps in doing what Jesus says, we will like the disciples find things exactly as he planned. Second, there's an invitation to all of us, to every single one of us, all of us here to be like The cult. Be like the cult. Bear the good news. Carry Jesus wherever you go. You don't have to be acclaimed. You're not going to be the star of the show. Your name's not going to be up in lights on the marquee. But be faithful. Be faithful to the gospel, be true to the kingdom, represent Jesus well with your words and your deeds and your homes and your workplaces and your friendships and your families. And when no one at all is paying attention, be like the cult. Spiritual transformation always begins with some form of disruption or interruption. How has God been opening the door to spiritual transformation in your life through disruption or interruption lately? Whether during the season of Lent or over the last couple of years or, or just even longer. Divine disruption is always both comfort and challenge. It's always grace and truth. It's always the foundation from which The God who loves operates. Okay, There is no challenge. There's no boundary setting. There's no structure or accountability or conviction that comes without also God's affirmation in unconditional terms that you are beloved. That you are a child of God. That you are made in God's image. That the full height and breadth and depth of God's love is for you. Maybe today you need to hear the reminder from God that I understand. I know what it feels like. Or I'm with you. I'll never leave you. Or I'm still working for your good even when you can't see it. Or I still love you. There is nothing. You can do to take you outside of my love. There is nothing you can do to take you outside of the love of God. That's a word we always need to hear, it's a word that God will speak into our souls until they become steeped in that love. The impact of encountering Jesus and the kingdom of God will also always include a challenge. Because we're never done growing. We're never done learning. We're never quite where we're going to be. At least not until Jesus comes again. At the earliest. Sometimes it will feel, this word from God, it will feel more like confrontation or challenge. As Jesus did with the Pharisees a nudge to take a risk to to trust to have faith despite what might go wrong to recognize the presence of God in the disruption sometimes that word will will seem even more interventionist like with the temple traders bringing a moment of sharp clarity like hitting rock, rock bottom that you need to stop walking the path you're on. You need to change your ways because you are hurting people, including yourself. Perhaps the invitation for you today is to lean in, to step up, to put your money where your mouth is, to follow up, to match your intention with action. Perhaps it is both as simple and as challenging as to trust Jesus and to do what He says to be faithful where you are and wherever you go. I want us to just take a moment right now. The band's going to come up. We're going to have a moment of just reflection and preparation. What is the word that the Lord has for you today? What does God want to say to you today? Pay attention in your spirit. Make a note of it. Write it down. Put it in your phone. Text yourself. Whatever it is that you do to remind yourself of things that are important. Got every single one of us here today uh, is carrying something, is wrestling with something, is holding something heavy. And in this place, in this time, we need to hear your voice that says, I'm with you. I see you. I know what you're going through. You're not alone. And every single one of us in this place has a responsibility. As a person with agency, as a person with resources, and with areas of influence in our life, whether it's just our own self, our own own finances, our own time, our own energy. Maybe it stretches into work, Friendships, families. It's always an invitation to more. Not in a guilt-inducing way, not in a brow-beating way, but in a way that says, come on, there's more. Let's go get it. Let's go together. Whatever the word is, God, that that you have for each person here, each person here in my words, God, would you by your spirit plant it in good soil? Would you make it come to life? In the way that only you can. Because we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.